our one hope is the all-sufficient merit of Christ. And so as we come to your word now, we pray that by the, the new life that is ours through the Lord Jesus, that you would raise us to eternal life and that you would speak uh, and give us ears, O Lord, to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you were here for Sunday school, you heard a, a wonderful uh, treatment and a wonderful explanation of that hymn, particularly the first and last verses, which were the original verses by Charles Wesley. If you did not hear that, I'd encourage you to go back on our website later this week and listen to it. But for now, please take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 1. This is our second week in a multi-year study of John's gospel, and it's also our second week in a row looking at these first five verses. Now, this passage is so simple that I think almost any child in this congregation can understand it, and yet so profound that a thousand sermons would not exhaust its riches. Listen to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. I assume this may happen in other marriages other than just my own, but on occasion there will be a moment of stillness, a moment of quiet, and it's just the two of us, and Stephanie will look at me and say, what are you thinking about? And I'll say, nothing. And she simply can't imagine thinking about nothing. She's got kids to chase and meals to cook and laundry to fold, and so she'll say, no, really, what are you thinking about? And I'll say, really, there's nothing going on upstairs right now in my head. I'm thinking about nothing. Well, this morning, I want you to try to think about nothing. Now, not just nothing, but I want you to think about the nothing that was there before creation. What does that nothing look like to you? Genesis starts off that way in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. What did it look like before the creation of the heavens and the earth. I've, I've tried to envision nothing, and it's sort of just a dark open abyss, a, a dark open space. Except if there's nothing, then there's no space, there's no darkness, there's nothing. It's, it's impossible for us to think about. And yet, John is saying it is out of that nothing that God created everything. And John wants us specifically to understand that Jesus, the creator of it all, who created all things of nothing, At one point in time, he entered into his own creation. It's hard enough to think about nothing than to think about the reality that the God who created us from nothing then took on flesh and dwelt among us. He who created life interjected himself into that created life that he had made. Now, for the Christian, if you're a Christian, you know this. Doctrinally, you know this. It's nothing new, but it's incredibly profound to think about. We said it last week. John is going to teach us a lot of things that even young children in this church already know. But, but even the most learned of people in this congregation are still in the shallow end. 
These are truths that will grow with us for the rest of our lives, and we will never outgrow them. And the truth that I want to focus on this morning is one that John is foreshadowing here. John does this. This is what's so important about the first 18 verses of John's prologue is he's really laying a foundation that he's going to parse out for the rest of this book. He really tells us what he's getting ready to tell us, and then he'll tell us, and then he comes to the end, and he's going to tell us what he told us. Well, before I tell you what this truth is, I want you to see it for yourself. Look at John 1.1, just those first three words. It's two words in the Greek, in the beginning. Now, if I said in the beginning and you didn't know which passage of Scripture I was looking at, you, you probably would not have thought John 1.1. Most of us would have gone to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and what John's doing here, it's, it's on purpose. He's intentionally mimicking the language of that original creation. And what he's going to do for the next 20 chapters is show us that Jesus came to establish a new people, a new creation. John loves the theme of newness. If, if you've studied Revelation, you know that Revelation is uh, very much about the new heavens and the new earth. In the gospel, John is showing that Jesus came to create for himself the new people who will occupy that new heavens and the new earth. One of the truths that's woven all throughout the pages of this book is new life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. That word life is used 40 plus times in this gospel. It's, it's essential to what John's saying. And yet this new life that we have in Christ is radically different than anything else in this world. And those who've experienced the new life, the new birth, as we're going to call it in a few minutes, find that we are radically different than who we used to be. What John is going to teach us is that when we look to Jesus Christ, we find an ever-flowing fountain full of abundant, joyful, eternal life. That's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to see it under three headings. First is no life. Second, new life. Third, to live is Christ. So first, no life. There's a scene in the movie Toy Story where Buzz Lightyear is, has sort of just set foot on, on Earth, and he's, in a sense, doing kind of a reconnaissance mission. He's looking around, he sees the things that are going on, and he says this great line, there is no sign of intelligent life anywhere. That was in 1995. I can't imagine what he'd say in 2023. But John is opening with a very similar truth. There's no sign of spiritual life anywhere. We need to try to understand this in terms of the world God has created for us to really understand what spiritual life is. God created all things for his glory. And almost all of creation lives to the glory of God simply by existing. So mountains point to the glory of God simply by being mountains. Birds, when they chirp, are chirping to the glory of God. Even nasty things, cockroaches, Cockroaches live to the glory of God. I don't know how, but they do. But only humans were given the special ability to willfully and volitionally glorify God. We are made to be like little mirrors reflecting the glory of God to the ends of the earth. 
we're, we're reflectors. The way the sun reflects the moon, the light of God is to bounce off of us to the ends of the earth, illuminating the whole world. We're unique among all the creation in this. We see this in Genesis 2 that when God forms man from the dust, he breathes life into his nostrils. Man is not merely body. We are body and soul. And so to be truly alive is not merely to be bodily alive, but to be alive in body and soul. What did Jesus say? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If we were just bodies, we would live by bread alone. But because we are body and soul, we live by by earthly food and by heavenly food. We need both to be truly alive. And so to be spiritually alive the way God intended would be for us to live every moment of every day in the presence of God to the glory of God. We would eat breakfast to the glory of God. We would take naps to the glory of God. We would cut the grass to the glory of God. We would procreate and raise families and work jobs all to the glory of God. That's what we were created for. But you know as well as I do, because of sin, we don't do that, do we? We can't do that, and we don't even want to do it, at least not on God's terms. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 10, and he's quoting Psalm 53, there is none who seeks God, not even one. Now, someone might say, well, what about all those people worshiping all sorts of gods all over the world right now? Aren't they seeking God? Well, I'd answer with with the words, I think it was Voltaire, uh, who, who was not a Christian, But he said, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor. We've been creating gods in our image. Voltaire actually thought that invalidated Christianity, but it only reinforces the claims Christianity makes, that as spiritual as man may be, none of us rightly worships the true God on our own. We're spiritually dead. We may be sincere, but until we worship God, the God of the Bible, as the God of the Bible has made himself worshipable to us, we're sincerely wrong. Someone sent me a video this week from a supposedly Christian church in which a person, I think, pretending to be a pastor, and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, they thought they were a pastor, but in the opening prayer, this person prayed to her heavenly mother. I saw a video from a seminary, a purportedly Christian seminary, where people were confessing their sins to trees and asking forgiveness for not taking better care of the environment. Uh, It's utterly ridiculous, isn't it? But it proves our point that we are natural-born worshipers, but we naturally are born worshiping the wrong things. Uh, Paul said it this way in Romans 1. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And, And so what happens is despite much spiritual activity, there is no spiritual vitality in us. That's what we heard in our call to confession from Ephesians 2. Look there again with me, if you would. The Apostle Paul is getting ready to expound on the the marvels and wonders of the gospel. 
But until we really understand uh, what our spiritual condition is, the gospel will never really make an impact on us. And, and so he says right there in Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And, and look at verse 3, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of my, mankind. The native spiritual condition of man is that there is much spiritual activity, but no spiritual vitality. There is no spiritual life anywhere, at least apart from Christ. And the problem is that we don't know it. And so what's happening all over the world, even this very morning, is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are seeking to know some God that they have made in their image. And they're trying to, 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 to do whatever they can to reach some degree of righteousness or nirvana or whatever their religion prescribes. But no matter what we do on our own, the diagnosis is still the same. We're still dead in our, our sins and trespasses. And so we have no life. And not only that, we have no means to procure life for ourselves. So that's the first thing, no life. Second thing, new life. John says in verse 4, in him was life. The one who gave life to the original creation is the one who must also give new life to the new creation. Through Jesus Christ, we go from no life to new life. Look with me at one of the most, uh, probably most famous passages in John's gospel. Look with me at John chapter 3. I just want you to see how Jesus is going to weave this theme through this gospel. John chapter 3, we meet this very religious Jewish leader named Nicodemus. He probably thought he was very, spirit, very much spiritually alive. He was at least very spiritually busy. But there's something in Nicodemus that knows things are not all that well with him despite his extensive religious resume. And so in verse 2, this is John 3, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you've heard that terminology of born again. Birth is just the beginning of life. And so when Jesus says you must be born again, he's saying there has to be new life. You must have a new birth if you would be spiritually alive. Nicodemus, you're blind. You can't even see the kingdom. And so you must have a new birth. You, you, you can understand how confusing this statement would be to Nicodemus. Now, I, I've always wondered how to read verse 4. I, is it sarcasm? I think it's sarcasm, verse 4. How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you are, like the rest of mankind, naturally dead in your sins, and all your religious activity is for nothing, because you've never been born again. And Nicodemus, until you come to that place where you realize that you're a sinner in need of saving, 
no amount of religious activity can make you alive. Let's, let's talk for a moment about the new birth, about this new life that Jesus is talking about here. A couple of things about it. First, Jesus is making clear new life is the sovereign work of God's Spirit. I want you to raise your hand if you chose to be born the first time. None of us made that decision, and Christ intentionally uses the imagery of new birth to show that this is something that happens outside of us. It is, happens within the counsels of God, that before the foundation of the world, he chose a people who would be holy and blameless to him. Ephesians 1 tells us that. And Christ, in using the language of new birth, is showing us that the new birth must be the Spirit's sovereign work. You know, another image of that in John's gospel is going to be the story of Lazarus. Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha were good friends of Jesus, and Jesus received word that Lazarus was very sick, and he started to travel to Lazarus, but by the time he got there, he was dead, and you have, the, I think, the greatest line in the old King James, where it says, behold, he stinketh. And as the Lord Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's a picture of what happens in the new birth. As we are taken from being Lazaruses, spiritually speaking, to new life. Of course, Jesus did it how? He did it with a word, Lazarus, arise. And, and theologians often point out that the word of Christ is so powerful that if he had not said, Lazarus, arise, if he had just said, arise, then all of the dead on earth would have been raised because he's so powerful. This is the sovereign work of God. And just as Lazarus contributed nothing to his own new life, neither do Christians. It's all Christ doing. That's the first thing. Second, about this new life, new life is marked by new spiritual awareness. There are things that Nicodemus simply doesn't understand when Jesus is talking to him. How am I supposed to go into my mother's womb and be born again? He, he doesn't have eyes to see. But what happens when we've had the new birth, when the Spirit has made us alive and given us new life? We begin to see God's Word as it is. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. That doesn't mean we understand every verse all the time. Even Peter said sometimes Paul's writings were confusing. Amen? Uh, but it means that we begin to have a sense of who we are. And we begin to understand and, and become self-aware about our sin. We realize that we are indeed, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in our sins. And as John 6 is going to say, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. We begin to have a level of spiritual awareness. And we see our need of the Savior. Third, those who are given new life are made willing and able to believe. After we receive the new birth, we will come to saving faith. Look down at verse 16. Jesus has just been explaining all of this new birth stuff. And then he says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. It's not belief that produces new life. New life produces belief. So that all whom God has chosen will come to saving faith. 
And then finally, new life is marked by repentance and new obedience. The same Spirit of Christ who causes us to be born again works within us to make us like the Lord Jesus. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it really well in its definition of what is sanctification. It says, in sanctification, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ. We were made to look like him in the beginning. We sinned, and so that image was marred. And what God does through the gospel, through the new birth, is he makes us more like Jesus. Now, one of the problems for us when we think about this new life is we tend to think about it in extremely individualistic terms. Jesus died for me. I will live with him forever in heaven. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's all completely true for believers. But what Jesus came to do in bringing new life, in bringing about new creation, is far bigger than that. We need to think about it not in individualistic terms, but in communal and covenantal terms, cosmic terms even. Jesus didn't come merely to save me. If we're the ones at the center of this thing, and Jesus came to me simply to save me, and that was Jesus' chief end, then I'm looking at the wrong end of the telescope, aren't I? Jesus' chief end is not to love me. Jesus' chief end is the glory of God. That's what Christ lives for, and that's what Christ delights in. And so when Jesus came to save us, it was not simply that he came for me. He did. But he came for us to renew us after his image that we might rightly reflect the glory of God as we were created to do in the beginning. It was to create a new people who are spiritually alive and who are able to glorify his Father as we were created to do in the first place. These are the people who will one day fill the new heavens and the new earth to the glory of God. This is why we want to cultivate spiritual appetites in this world, because that's what we're going to be doing for heaven is worshiping God, delighting in Him, and serving Him. But that's not something that has to wait. Christ begins that work now as He, by His Spirit, is sanctifying us and conforming us to the image of Himself. That's new life. That's Christ's purpose in giving us new life. Well, this brings us to the third point. To live, to really live, is Christ. That's a phrase I'm borrowing from the Apostle Paul. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. But the born-again believer is one who has been made spiritually alive and has been turned in the direction now so that we can reflect the glory of God as we are created to do. Just as there's a stark distinction between dead men buried in a graveyard and live men going about their daily business, there's a visible and obvious distinction between those who have been born again and those who have not. For the Christian who's been born again, our lives have been radically reoriented. Where there was once disdain for God and and repulsion against God, there's now new life. Where we once evidenced a love of the filth of sin, we now love the grace of Jesus. The whole purpose of this is that we would now live life as the image bearers we were created to be in the very beginning. Look with me at Philippians 1. In Philippians 
Uh, One, Paul is writing to a church whom he dearly loved. He's writing from prison, and he does not know if he's going to live to see them again or not. He says, you know, I I really hope to see you. Uh, If I live to get out of here, that's the one thing I really want to do is come and visit you folks. Now, think about that. If I live... People today spend their life's savings trying to extend their lives and prolong the day that they face death. But what Paul's saying in Philippians 1 is, you know, whether I live or die, it's not entirely that important to me as long as Christ is honored, whether in my life or in my death. And look at verse 21. He's going to say what I hope could be the life verse of every person in this room. Philippians 1.21 For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Hey, Philippi, if I die here in prison, that's fine with me because I'll be with Christ. I I hope every Christian ought to be at such peace with death and longing to see Jesus that we could say that, to die is gain. But if I live, well, then to live is Christ. That's the life, that's the good life, that's the life I crave, I long for, is to walk with Jesus and know Him and make Him known, to live in sweet communion with Him. Friends, what is your opinion of the good life? What is it that would really make life worth living? The answer to that is is how you spend your time today. You, You are living for what you think makes life worth living. It's a nice vacation, it's a healthy 401k. It's, it's for my family to all be together. It's to have a good reputation. That's the good life. That's what makes life really worth living. There's a great line in Braveheart, uh, another 1995 movie, where William Wallace says, every man dies, but not every man really lives. You know, if Paul had, had died in prison for the sake of the gospel, that would not be a tragedy. We've got brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world today. And there are some who are going to die for their faith. That is not a tragedy. And do you know what a tragedy is? It's when we live for all the wrong things. When we're living for stuff that is going to be fleeting, it is going to pass away in only a moment of time. That is tragic. And when Paul says to live is Christ, he's saying the reason, the purpose of every day that I live on this earth, of every breath that I take between now and the time God calls me home is to live in the presence of God to the glory of God. That's what the, that's what the original creation was for. And that's the reason for which Jesus has newly created us. You know, John, John's gospel is loaded with explanations of what it means to say to live as Christ. Look with me at John 4 for a moment. It's the best sound in the world to a pastor when you hear pages turning. John 4, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well. This woman has looked everywhere for life for the good life, for lasting joy. She's looked everywhere. She's been married five times. Now she's living with a man who isn't her husband. And Jesus gives her a perfect summary of how she spent her whole life. Look at John 4, 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Let me, let me tell you, friends, if you are seeking the good life in anything other than Jesus Christ, it is a broken cistern, and you will find yourself thirstier tomorrow than you are today. And there is going to be constant temptation to build your life upon things that cannot satisfy, upon things that cannot last. But our Lord keeps going. Look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying this to a woman who is physically thirsty. She's there at the well, but she's spiritually parched. And he says, there is something that awaits you that can satisfy your soul in ways that you have never imagined. Uh, have you ever seen an artesian well? Uh, they flow from underground invisible springs. We can't see them from up above, and they're practically endless. There's one where we hunt about an hour from here, and it's flowed steadily for decades. Uh, we can be in a drought, and the, the spring is flowing. The swamp can be almost completely dry. The ponds dry up, but that well is constantly flowing because it has a source of water that can't be seen. And Jesus is saying, if I am the source of life for you, if the good life to you is knowing me, then it is an endless stream, one that will never dry up. It won't be like those five husbands you've had that have only ended in more and more heartbreak. Christ is the living water that flows into and nourishes and refreshes our souls regardless of external circumstances. When you have these living waters, you can endure all sorts of circumstances and difficulties and not wither because the living waters are constantly nourishing and refreshing you. Turn over a couple chapters to John 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and of course people start following him because it's free food, right? Jesus, here's your chance to build your brand, to be a real influencer. Look what Jesus says to this massive crowd in verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You've got a soul that is hungry. I know you fed your bodies. But he's saying, you have a soul that is hungry, and the only thing that can nourish your soul is me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And food's a great illustration here. We know what it is to be hungry. I have three boys. Somebody's hungry at all times. But Jesus is saying, you know, there's a spiritual emptiness inside of you. You can try to fill it with all sorts of junk food. But you want something that'll last? To live as Christ. That's the only thing that lasts. Do you know that bread? One more. Look over at John 10. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is an amazing assessment of life here on earth. That there is one who at all times 
is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But what does Jesus say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, have it overflowingly. And he goes on, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Don't ever let anyone tell you that life in Christ is dull. We have students that in the next few years will be going off to college. And you're going to be presented with all sorts of temptations to think that the life that you were taught to appreciate is not really worth living for. Oh, dear ones, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ came that you may have life and have it abundantly. In fact, Jesus is saying here when he goes on to say, I lay down my life for the sheep. He is saying, I am so committed to you experiencing the abundant life for which you were created, the kind that can only be found in fellowship with me, that I lay down my life for you. To live is Christ. To realize that is absolutely transformative. And we need to understand that we have to, do a, to live that out. We have to say that day after day against the backdrop of a world that is utterly opposed to us worshiping and enjoying Christ. Our world tells us, follow our hearts. And Jesus says, follow me. The world says, be true to yourself. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The world says, live your truth. I am the truth. The world says, do what makes you happy. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And as we begin to hear our Lord's voice, it drowns out the backdrop, that cacophony and noises that come to us from this world. And we begin to truly be able to say, to live as Christ. That's what Paul says there back in Philippians 1. You don't have to turn there. But after saying to live as Christ, he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, then that means fruitful labor for me. Now, dear ones, if, if, if you're able to say to live as Christ, not only will you have that inward experience of knowing and walking with Christ in communion with him, but the outward privilege of serving him, of loving him of fruitful labor. You know, I would think every one of us in this room wants to be able to say what, what Paul says there. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Let me ask you, just think about the last week of your life. Would, would, an, observer, would an observer describe it as fruitful labor for Christ? I, am, I have no doubt that in many cases he would. Would, would observers of us as a congregation say that we really believe that to live is Christ? Do we live every day, even before we put our feet on the ground, thinking, how can I be of usefulness to Jesus Christ today? I wonder if we do that, if we are committed to faithful service to him. You know, this isn't complicated, but it's costly. It was costly for Christ to die for you. It'll be costly for you to live for him. You know, I, I, uh, I don't think that there is a church on the face of this earth that would be a greater joy to serve with than the saints at First Scots. I don't say that out of flattery. I, I have no desire to flatter you. I mean that in full sincerity, in terms of sweetness, in terms of growth in the fruit of the Spirit, in terms of hunger for the word. 
I, I don't know churches that compare, especially in the last few years, how God has really cultivated an appetite in so many. But, you know, for many of us, I'm not sure we can say to live as Christ because we are so distracted by everything else. To live as work, to live as family, to, to live as travel, to live as, as a life of leisure. That's the good life to us. Now, how would you finish that sentence? For me, to live is? And we've got to learn to say with the Apostle Paul, as he's going to say two chapters later, later in Philippians 3, I count it all loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Whatever it is that's occupying your time and your heart, it needs to be shifted to the back burner so that the priority may be knowing God, walking with Him. That He may be able to say for me to live as Christ. Now, you might be thinking, well, how do I put my children on the back burner? Well, I guarantee if you are seeking Christ first, you'll be a better father. You'll be a better, better mother. If you're seeking Christ first, you're going to be a better employee because it'll transform all of life. Whatever it is that's taking the place of Christ as the source of life in your life, lay it down at the altar of Christ that he might be preeminent in you and to you. Um, Pastor Walton, uh, in a previous Sunday evening sermon, talked about C.T. Studd, and I want to I want to talk about him as well. Stud was a cricket player in England in the late 1800s. It's hard for us to imagine a cricket player being famous, but in that, at that time, he was probably one of the most famous athletes in the world. He was also extremely wealthy, received an inheritance uh, worth uh, probably close to $10 million today. He could have easily said, for me to live is fame. For me to live is, is money. You know, the Lord got hold of C.T. Studd. He left the cricket field, entered the mission field, gave away his money to fund countless missionaries. Why? In Studd's own words, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's another way of saying what, what Paul was saying. For me to live is Christ. Can you say that? Dear church family, are you willing to put your whole life before God at his disposal? You, you wake up in the morning, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to read? How do you want me to spend my time? Who do you want me to minister to? Who do you want me to call? Uh, who should I visit? What do you want me to do with my money today? It's all yours, Lord. What do you want me to do with it? That's what it means to say to live as Christ. I need to land this thing soon. Let me ask you a couple questions. First, have you ever been born again? Do you have the new life that, that Jesus was talking about with the woman at the well, with Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? Do you, do you have that new life? Have you been born again? Now, please don't say, yes, I, I, came, I walked an aisle 50 years ago. Maybe you were converted then. But, but some of those emotional conversion experiences can be very misleading. 
Others of you don't remember a specific day. Maybe that's caused you grief. That's not what's important. It's not important when it was or exactly what happened. What's really important is whether the Holy Spirit has come into your life and made you a new creation. When the Spirit gives you new birth, He grows you up in the faith. He bears His fruit in you. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5.22. Those are the things that start growing out of the soil of your life when the Holy Spirit is there. He conforms you more and more to the image of Christ so that you not only begin to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ more, but you delight to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ more. We do that here in this world as practice for what we will do for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. If you say you've been born again, but there's very little evidence of it, if there's little concern for the glory of God, little love for His Word, little fruit of the Spirit living in you, be like Nicodemus. Ask the hard questions. And be like Joe Stonebreaker. Let today be the day of salvation. Have you been born again? Don't let another day go by without being right with Jesus Christ. Second, are you living in such a way that you can truly, sincerely say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Would observers of your life see that Christ is your all-consuming passion? I think for most of us, the answer to that's going to be yes and no. Yes, a little bit, but not to the degree that I want. That's the third question. What are you going to do differently this week to be able to say truly for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? All, all of us have changes we need to make in our life. We need to get rid of distractions. We need to step out of our comfort zone. We need to quit making excuses. The believer's job is to reflect, to shine forth the glory of the light of Christ with every moment of every day. Consider your life, consider this week, and figure out what needs to change so that you can truly say to live as Christ. There is no higher calling, no loftier purpose, no greater goal than for you to spend your life for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we confess these are weighty things. And there is a selfish part of us, myself included, that wants to push back, that wants to make excuses, that wants to live in my comfort zone. Rather than being able to say with the Apostle Paul, as we read in Sunday school this morning, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Father, I pray for those in this room who are not yet born again, and there are undoubtedly some. If, if the Apostle Paul planted churches that had both wheat and tares in them, then undoubtedly this church today as well does. And so I pray for those who perhaps have a, a niggling feeling in their hearts that something is not right spiritually with them. I pray that they would be like Nicodemus and come ask the hard questions. And I pray for those who are truly in the faith and yet perhaps are selfish with time or distracted in how we, uh, where we sow our energy, our resources. 
Lord, I pray that you would train our hearts so that in one voice, we as a congregation might be able to say with all sincerity to live as Christ and to die as gain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.